Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, and as always with me, Andreas Steno, the founder and CEO of Steno Research. And um, good to see you again, Alf. Uh, we are back together after a week apart, and um, we have a lot to discuss today. I don't know whether we should start with a, um, a hide-and-seek game with Joe Biden, because I read before we uh, started recording here that Joe Biden basically plans on leaving Washington for the Memorial Weekend. And we don't have a debt ceiling deal yet. I think it's pretty uh, clear uh, if you watch the pricing of T-bills maturing just ahead of June 1st and T-bills maturing just after June 1st that the market has at least bought into the story from Janet Yellen that the actual crossover date, so the date where the US Treasury will run out of money, will be Thursday next week. Uh, so... What do you make of, of this story right now? Is it something that we should be concerned about, Elf? Well, they're taking a weekend, man. Nothing urgent to discuss, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, just a joke. Um, look, there are a couple of things to consider on the debt ceiling. The first one is, well, when the government runs out of money, we, ex we don't know exactly. We can try to estimate that. It's very complicated. Uh, there are a lot of moving pieces. I think it's fair to say that the first week of June is the high likelihood that that might happen. Watch, though, because there are a set of um, extraordinary measures and trick up the sleeve of the government where basically you, it's, it's a bit hard and technical to explain, but basically what happens is that some debt that was uh, basically parked and bought by government-like agencies and social mm. security funds can effectively be freed up and sold to the public to try and replenish the coffer of the TGA. That should be worth about $50, $60 billion. It could be another small help to try and, uh, you know, make sure that you don't hit the zero. Uh, on June 12th, you get corporate tax receipts that start coming in again. So, you know, we don't know whether between June 1st and June 12th, the US is going to supposedly run out of money, which is another very fun thing, the government cannot, in principle, never runs out of its own money, but that's another story for self-imposed accounting rules that we have. <laughs> uh, but, but still, the government might make it between June 1st and June 12th. We don't know exactly. There is a lot of uncertainty out there. What I want to say is also the following. It's not like the government defaults the moment the TGA goes to zero. The moment the TGA goes to zero, the government is forced to prioritize. So it can only spend the money that, that is coming in at that very point in time with tax receipts. It still has money coming in through tax receipts, but it can't spend any more than that. So it's forced to prioritize on what does it spend the money coming in. And, you know, paying coupons and honoring principle, I think it's going to be a high priority if you get to that yeah. point. What matters for the economy is even if we get ahead, if we get past June 1st, June 12th, the most red hot period, if you don't have a deal, you are going to have a de facto contractionary fiscal outlook out there because the government can't discretionarily spend money anymore. It's, it's basically very restricted in its ability to spend money. And if you estimate what that means, well, that's a serious reduction of federal spending. And obviously, government spending is a large contributor to economic growth. So that is, I think, really the uncertainty out there. If they find a deal, all of that goes away very quick. 
if they keep dragging negotiations away, even if you don't hit zero in the Treasury General account, you will be forced to prioritize payments going forward, which means you can spend less on a discretionary basis and the outlook for the economy worsens. Yeah. So I guess one way of solving this um, is to implement a so-called partial shutdown. Ensure that you uh, release enough employees uh, temporarily from duty uh, to match incoming receipts with uh, incoming bills, basically. And um, I basically have that as, that as my base case right now. I, I don't know whether it matters a whole lot if it's uh, implemented in one way or the other. What matters a whole lot from here is that since we are very close to the zero low bound for the TGA, and that is maybe the most certain thing today, we cannot go below zero on the TGA, uh, then we essentially know that the U.S. Treasury will no longer be able to add liquidity to dollar markets. That's a given from here, more or less. Uh, and in most scenarios from here, they will likely end up withdrawing a lot of dollar liquidity over the next three, six months. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why we start seeing uh, spillovers to a lot of dollar-related markets from the current debt ceiling situation. Uh, I wouldn't rule out that this is at least one of the reasons why the US dollar has started resurging. Uh, I wouldn't rule out that it is one of the reasons why we see an increase in short-term interest rates in US dollars. Uh, and I wouldn't rule out that it is one of the reasons why we see broad-based risk off outside of uh, NVIDIA. <laughs> S&P <laughs> 1 is flying. <laughs> Talking about NVIDIA for a second, Andreas. Um, yesterday, a fun statistics, actually two fun facts that I have. The first is, at some point, I was checking yesterday the breadth of the, um, I think it was 40 points rallying the S&P 500 at some point. And uh, over 100% of the 40 points were due to the fact that NVIDIA was going through the roof, which basically meant that the S&P 1 was rallying and the S&P 499 not much so. Uh, so that, that goes to explain, to show how outsized really the rally in NVIDIA has been, uh, even to try, basically it moves the needle for the entire index, one stock alone. That's really impressive. Mm. And the second is that I posted something that then ended up went, uh, going viral, which was just a reflection on the 2000s. One of these companies that then went effectively bankrupt, I think was called Sun Microsystems or something like that. At some point, it was trading at 10 times sales, uh, price to sales 10x. And uh, I think NVIDIA is trading even higher than that, by the yes. way. But uh, back then, 10x price sales was quite aggressive. And yeah, when the company went belly up, then the CEO was asked by investors, was questioned by investors. And he said something like, I mean, what, what did you think? Like you're buying something at 10x sales for you to make money back. I need to basically do some ridiculous things and you're assuming just non-credible things when you buy stocks at this valuation. So what do you want from me? Basically, you can check the whole story. It's pretty fun. But okay, back to um, to the dollar. Yeah. Um, so what I, happens there? Well, it's a bit uh, tricky, to be honest, because if I look at how asset classes have performed in 2011, where we got a little bit of drama around the debt ceiling between July and August, I've put a chart here uh, that actually shows that it's a very simple chart of performance back then in 2011. Mm. Well, any safe haven, so say gold or the Japanese yen, 
or bonds actually ended up trading well. So they rallied between 4 and 20% uh, in the six or seven weeks around that ceiling drama. So the dollar, at least against gold and against uh, Japanese yen, didn't really end up appreciating much in this environment. Obviously, equities suffer too. But instead, the chart that you're showing here um, talks about dollar funding stress around the shutdown of the government. Yeah. So why don't you explain uh, what angle are you taking there? So what I've noted is that uh, when you look at partial shutdowns of the U.S. government, uh, you tend to see liquidity stress and dollar markets around the implementation date. Uh, and I think, again, the reason relates to the uh, liquidity in dollar markets once the Treasury General account uh, is close to the zero lower bound. And typically, we are very, very, very close to the zero lower bound when a partial shutdown is implemented. The whole purpose of the partial shutdown is to ensure that the TGA uh, runs on fumes for even longer, right? And the point here is that uh, you typically see 15, 20 basis points of whitening in IPER. OIS spreads, so a measure of the liquidity stress in dollar markets. And I'd actually say that typically you see a, if anything, a stronger dollar when the uh, liquidity stress arises in uh, in dollar markets. And what we have on the chart here is um, a chart on the dollar development 100 days prior and 100 days after the implementation of partial shutdowns. And you actually have a 100% hit rate. You should never say that, but a 100% hit rate over the past four instances of partial shutdowns of being long the US dollar from the actual date of the shutdown and 100 days after. Uh, so what I'm saying here is that all the doom and gloom around the dollar uh, is not necessarily fair just because the US government um, pulls out another few uh, tricks out of, it, out of its sleeve, basically. Yeah, fair to say as well that you're measuring the DXY here. So yeah. you're basically measuring the dollar mostly against other currencies and mostly against the euro because yes. of the composition of the, of the DXY. I mean, euro dollar is a very important FX pair and around shutdowns, basically you limit the supply of dollars to market participants um, in general, which probably makes um, funding for people sitting outside uh, the United States, funding in dollar more expensive. And that reflects as well in the DXY, which is 60% the dollar against the euro. So basically cyclical currencies and other currencies, apart from the very safe havens, like maybe the Japanese yen or the Swiss franc, tend to not do very well against the dollar when the government is shutting down. This is basically the thesis there. Uh, I, I also noticed something else, because before we were chatting about NVIDIA, which makes me think about market cap S&P against equal weight, S&P. So let's take the 503 components. I think it's the S&P 500 and let's give each of them the same weight. Put them into an index. There is actually an ETF uh, for that. It's called uh, RSP. And then if you look at this chart here, you see that the equal weight S&P 500, first of all, hasn't really gone anywhere this year, hasn't really gone anywhere in a year from today. So it's really basically flatlined and chopped around the same level. But most importantly, credit spreads have been kind of tracking very closely what the equal weight S&P 500 is doing. And the reason why I'm plotting this chart here is to explain that both of them, equal weight and credit spreads, tend to be a more nuanced measure of how markets are trading, of how risk assets are trading. So you don't tend to overweight 
by looking at an index like the S&P, the five, seven largest companies who give everybody the same weight. You look at credit spreads as well to try and have an understanding of how the broad corporates are doing out there. And the answer is, meh. I mean, they're doing okay. I mean, they're going nowhere. They've been chopping around the same levels for uh, the last five months or the last 12 months, mm. actually. So um, what do you make of this equal weight market cap discussion, credit spreads, broad markets in general? Well, certainly the optimism on an index level is not reflected as soon as you look at equal weights, right? And I think that um, goes to show that the rebound that we've seen is very, very driven by a few thematics. Uh, artificial intelligence, obviously the one uh, driving most of it. And I mean, I, I have to admit that I was caught by surprise by the magnitude of the guidance of NVIDIA. Uh, they really, really see this as a, as a material game changer for the outlook uh, for semiconductors and um, everything related to semiconductors obviously exploded to the upside after that message. So we have a, a generally weak macro sentiment paired with a few thematics moving the needle uh, on an index level. It's kind of an interesting environment. And if you've missed a train on, on that uh, thematic or those couple of thematics, then you've basically gone nowhere for quite a while. Um, so I guess I guess that is the reason why you see such a discrepancy between the rhetoric among macro analysts and the index level performance of equities right now. I think the biggest discrepancy out there, one of the biggest, is that both nominal interest rates and real interest rates have been moving up very aggressively mm. over, over May, uh, with, in some cases, multiple standard deviation moves, uh, with real rates markedly in positive territory, in some cases even up to 1.5%, 2%, depending at which curve you look at and which point you look at. And yet... Exactly the stocks that supposedly are the most sensitive to higher interest rates are actually overperforming. Mm. So this is something that I'd like to spend a second on. Um, it reminds me of a chat with my good friend Mark Dow, also on Twitter, a former trader. Um, and so with Mark, we were discussing the fact that animal spirits in markets sometimes can prevail even the most basic and intuitive relationships. For instance, tech stocks and interest rates, right? And we, all, we went back to 2007 mm. or 2000 and looked at the fact that Fed funds back there were 6%, 5 or 6% Fed funds. True, the world was different, so equilibrium interest rates were higher in 2000 or in 2007, but 5% Fed funds are still relatively restrictive, pretty high risk-free rates. And with 5% risk-free rates, you still got two of the largest bubbles that we have seen in recent history, the housing market bubble in the US and the tech bubble, the dot-com bubble in 2000. So sometimes animal spirits can be, as you said, Andreas, due to a theme. You know, there is a theme now, which is artificial intelligence. Any company mentioning AI, actually, I think Google mentioned it 100 times in their earnings call or something like that, gets a boost. And so animal spirits can also, you know, just trump anything else, including higher interest rates. Yeah, it can. And maybe we should try and mention artificial intelligence as much as we can in this podcast. And Elf, um, who knows whether it's actually me sitting here, cliffhanger. Um, but Elf, uh, in any case, what, what, what I'd like to, um, to pinpoint here is that 
when you look at real interest rates over the past, say, few weeks, uh, it strikes me a bit how big of a divergence we have between the most recent repricing of dollar interest rates in particular and then uh, everything that's ongoing in commodity markets. Uh, so, for example, through 21 and into 22, we had this uh, move or repricing in tandem. So commodities up um, alongside nominal rates and now we have a clear discrepancy in trends uh, over the past uh, month or so. And that is typically for me a warning signal when you see commodities continuously selling off alongside interest rates moving up. Uh, it is, of course, a symptom of higher real rates or the reason why we see higher real rates. Uh, and the, I mean, everything related to the commodity market screams that the, the economic cycle is going down still. Uh, while interest rates are repriced. And I, I, I'm i frankly caught by surprise um, by the market move in, in short-term dollar rates, um, given that the Fed, in my opinion, has been relatively clear that the base case is what I call a skip in June. Not an explicit pause, but a skip. I think they planned on skipping the rate hike in June if they um, got the chance to do so. And now with just a few signals from dollar uh, economic data, for example, initial claims suddenly dropping back a little bit. Uh, for example, the housing markets showing some weird signs of, of rebounding. I have to admit that it does. Uh, then all of a sudden markets are back suggesting that the fed could hike again this summer and let's see it's not the Paul, it's not the base case for paul I, I i i firmly stick to that view that it's not his base case but he could be forced to do so so this chart that you plotted here with the mm. one year forward one year fed funds yes. and energy in general or oil yeah i mean it's very interesting because basically in 2022 it was this commodity boost right and there's that mostly brought up inflation expectations and it propelled higher inflation and then central banks had to react but i mean commodities are now down year to date 30% mm. and it's basically across the board you can look at industrial metals you can look at energy you can look at agricultural commodities wherever you look at commodities are signaling disinflation yet fed funds are being repriced higher which basically means we are effectively saying that the, the consumers are very strong and that spending will remain strong and that real activity will remain strong and therefore the Fed needs to be tighter in the face of a commodity disinflation. Mm. So that's what we are saying to try and square all this up. This is what the market is saying, actually. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a circularity in this argument here on what the Fed is going to do going forward. It's a bit like, okay, the Fed would like to wait. I think that's what, they, what the majority of the Fed wants. They would like to stay here at 5% and wait it out and just wait for their tight policy to play out into the economy. Mm. But if it doesn't play out fast enough, they'll probably have to rethink whether this is tight enough and then go and hike again. Effectively, they're chasing also animal spirits, if you wish. Because if markets are rallying, if markets are stubbornly, you know, solid in the face of these 5% Fed funds for a long period of time, there's going to be a reflective mechanism where, you know, the Federal Reserve thinks, well, we are not really tightening conditions, are we? We think we are, but markets are doing well. So maybe we should do a bit more until you do too much. I think this is really the, uh, the situation where we are. And it's, 
it's been very frustrating for people that thought very much was already what was priced in uh, February, March in rates. We had a banking turmoil, right? So people thought, okay, that's it. This was too much. Mm. And then we priced a bazillion of interest rate cuts already this year and next year. And, you know, it didn't turn out to be a disaster. So basically there is a time component that punishes being too early in calling that the policy is tight. But at the same time, there is a big risk that the Fed takes signals from sentiment and animal spirits and says, okay, I need to do more. And then by doing more, you increase the risk that something really goes wrong. Because so far, Andreas, as you say, I mean, even the real estate market hasn't really gone very wrong. It has cooled off massively, true. Uh, but there are even some green shoots there. And the banking crisis hasn't unfolded yet into a broader crisis. So look, I see this more as a very delicate balancing mechanism. I think the risk that the, ultimately the Fed takes signals to you know, try and do a little bit more and ends up doing something wrong still remains pretty high. And I know we've discussed this over and over through March and April on this podcast, but I'd like to remind our listeners of the typical lag between a liquidity crisis and the subsequent credit contraction in the real economy. Uh, as we also discussed uh, during the first weeks of, of this banking turmoil, it's not necessarily something that will turn into an imminent broad crisis, uh, but what... Um, it could lead to is sustained conservative decision-making within banks, uh, a slowing credit demand in the real economy. And those things basically take a few quarters before they play out fully. Um, and therefore this, this window where everything looks better than feared is probably pretty normal uh, by at, at this juncture. Uh, and that's something that uh, is out of the ordinary in an economic cycle. We've seen similar um, price action ahead of 08. Not that I compared this to 08, but it it, it felt kind of similar. Uh, for a while, the Fed was close to pausing. All of a sudden, all central banks, all uh, academic economists, all institutional banks were out saying, well, maybe this is not that bad, and uh, the crisis is, is avoided and all that. And I get that exact vibe right now. Uh, no matter where you look, you start seeing headlines, oh, the crisis was avoided, the crisis was avoided, the crisis was avoided. And that is maybe the exact prerequisite for the actual crisis, that we get everyone aboard this This is avoided train. The subprime mortgage crisis has been contained. Mm. These were the famous words back then. Actually, this was true for probably four to five months at least. So the window was very, very large. And I think people shouldn't underestimate the power of narratives because mm. we also have been, uh, you know, schizophrenic this year in markets chasing narratives. I mean, there has been a disinflationary narrative all the way in February where we thought that inflation was going to magically go back very quick to 2% and, you know, the Fed was going to cut rates gently and everything was going to be fine. Then we got March. Oh God, uh, data are stronger than expected. And then Powell said, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe we need to go to 6%. Who knows? And then whew, you start repricing higher terminal rates. Then you get a banking stress. Oh, we need to cut 200 basis points straight away. So when you are in a narrative, in that very moment, it's very hard generally to take a step back and say, okay, where do I stand in the macro cycle? Let's not get dragged in, in this particular narrative. What is the data saying? And I think what you're saying is, is very, 
smart, we might now be in the part of the cycle where we say, eh, you know, the economy can handle risk-free rates at 5%. You know, it's fine. Look, um, maybe we should do even a bit more, right? And there is no really regional bank crisis. It's okay. And getting dragged in this narrative is very easy rather than looking at the big picture. Hey, you want to talk about a narrative that really didn't unfold how it was supposed to, and that's China. Yeah. China was one of the narratives, right? At the beginning of the year, it was like, whoa, these guys are going to boost growth and uh, Europe is going to do great because, you know, China reopens and Germany is one of the largest trade partners of China and so on and so forth. Well, Germany was in a recession. Technically yeah. speaking, is in a recession and China reopening isn't really going as planned. So any thoughts there? <laughs> it doesn't look pretty uh, if you look at right about every single China proxy out there, uh, no matter whether it's copper or uh, whether it's it's uh, direct in Chinese equities, etc. And it strikes me a little bit because I've I've uh, been banging the drum on a slightly better cycle uh, set up in, in Asia relative to the West. And we have a huge divergence between what Japan is doing right now and what China is doing mm. uh, in markets. Um, so maybe what I'm surprised the most by is is the lack of appetite to invest in China because it's certainly not there. Every time I've tried to say this um, uh, to uh, larger institutions, both in Europe and in the US, they've basically looked at, at me if, if if I was crazy, right? Well, no, 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 no mainland China, right? Uh, so. I guess to a certain extent, the spillover to the Japan is visible um, in in asset allocation, uh, but certainly this this China story is is completely dead and gone from a from a from a narrative perspective right now, uh, and that is also why uh, I've started to to ponder whether the Chinese authorities will have to implement what I call classic industrial policy here because they essentially struggle. Uh, with the momentum in everything related to the goods production cycle in, in, in China. The consumption locally is doing all right. Um, retail sales year-to-date is doing okay in China. Uh, pretty clear trend given that they've uh, allowed people to go outside again, um, to put it a little bit frank. And um, that part of the economy is is probably something that they cannot do much more to fuel right now. They've also handed out very, very cheap uh, consumer credit to try and fuel that. The other part of the economy, the producing part of the economy, the exporting part of the economy, the manufacturing part of the economy essentially, basically relies on momentum among non-domestic clients, right? And that momentum is not there. Uh, and... I guess one one way of refueling that momentum could essentially be to make Chinese goods cheaper again. And how do you do that? You allow the renminbi to weaken. We've seen it before, and um, even though it probably wasn't their first choice uh, of weapon, so to speak, yeah. I think we now have the signs that they're willing to consider it. So China has solved most of their slowdown of crisis in two ways. Their preferred mechanism is credit. And they've done that in 2009, very successfully, for example. But when it doesn't work, then they have to resort to something else. And that was the example of late 2015, beginning of 2016, where they resorted to renminbi devaluation. So I think this might be one of these cases, of course, it's going to take months before they even consider that because they're going to try and apply other solutions to the problem. But credit, um, and I have a, a chart here, that's the 
my own estimate of Chinese credit, the credit impulse index that I create. Look, I mean, China, first of all, the important thing to look in this chart is the average year-on-year creation of credit inflation adjusted in China is about 10% a year historically. It's huge. That's how much China relies on credit to grow. And right now we are at roughly half of that. It's not zero, but it's not great either, to be honest. So credit creation isn't really at levels that historically have helped the Chinese economy to cyclically recover. It seems like, you know, consumers that have been hit by this deleveraging in the housing sector and in the tech market are just not very happy to participate into this credit festival that China is trying to re-engineer somehow. So what are the ways? Well, you either double up on that, so you have to lower interest rates, you have to try and make sure credit gets channeled to the right places, because so far it's only going to state-owned enterprises. Maybe that's what they're going to try to do first, Andreas. So there, are, there have been chatters about cutting loan rates in China, basically, to make credit even cheaper. You also make your currency weaker by, in, that, in that sense because you, low domestic interest, you lower domestic interest rates against the dollar. So mechanically, interest rate differentials will make the renminbi weaker, but in a more orderly fashion. If that doesn't work, I think you're right. There is a, an industrial policy, good old devaluation of your currency to make your goods and services more attractive abroad. Yeah. And that's what they've done in 20, late 2015, basically yeah. to try and uh, avoid the hard lending. It worked. It worked. Yeah, at least it works short term. <laughs> and that's essentially what it's all about. Uh, I, I have a chart uh, on the renminbi in relation to energy costs in China, because one thing we always need to consider when uh, watching the Chinese developments is whether they pay a truckload or less than a truckload for their running energy imports, uh, since China is basically close to uh, 100% relying on energy imports. And right now, given the huge discounts that they get on barrels of oil bought in Russia of, say, $20 per barrel, they're actually back to late 2019, early 2020 levels on their energy costs measured in renminbi. Uh, and at the time, they allowed dollar uh, CNY to trade clearly above the seven handle into um, territory above 715, etc. So at least the, the resistance is not really there to allow the uh, renminbi to weaken now. And I think if we are going to um, get to the actual part of the show here, that dollar versus renminbi um, is one of the most attractive risk we watch trade out, trades out there. One, it carries pretty well. Uh, two, it, it may actually work in an adverse scenario. Uh, this, despite it being a positive carry trade, that's that's a pretty decent um, nature of the trade, uh, that cocktail. And um, the Chinese authorities are not against that trade right now, which is also something that is import of importance before you enter it. So, yeah, um, short and sweet, I think those three reasons make longs in dollars versus uh, CNH very attractive scene from uh, US soil. Okay, I like the weak... Uh... Chinese renminbi topic uh, as, a, as a trade idea. So for many people, I think doing the trade directly, it's very complicated <laughs> because mm. of uh, FX access and whatever you need to short the renminbi basically. So in this case, it might be good to explore something which is generally very dangerous in macro, which is proxy trading. So yes. you go and look for stuff that is highly correlated to, Ch to the Chinese cycle. 
and that has done particularly well, maybe detaching from uh, the Chinese weakness of late. And, um, well, you can look at trade partners of China to try and get an idea. You can look at countries that have a certain tie and an historical correlation to China. What pops up in this metrics, at least for me, is stuff like Australia and New Zealand. Both are very large trade partners of China. So China represents a lot of the trading that these countries do, especially in New Zealand, because of um, mostly commodities. And look, the New Zealand dollar, the Aussie dollar lately had gone up against other currencies because the domestic central banks apparently had changed their stance and wanted to try and tighten again, right? So we had some surprise hikes basically by the Bank of New Zealand and the Reserve Bank of Australia trying to re-engineer again a hiking cycle. It, it ultimately proved to be just a one-off. You know, they hiked once and then lately the Reserve Bank of New Zealand said, eh, I think we're fine here. So if that push of trying to push the terminal rate higher wasn't really a push, but was just one-off, and these currencies had appreciated because of that, and they have a, a close correlation to China, it might be a good idea to look at them downside, I mean, shorting the Aussie dollar or the New Zealand dollar, as a good proxy to play the, the Chinese weakness in markets that are more liquid and more accessible mm. to many. Yeah, fair point. Um, and maybe, honestly, a very straightforward proxy could be to be short the euro versus the US dollar as well. True At that. least it's correlated. Uh, and I've been banging the drum on euro optimism being too much now uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, also traded the euro on the short side versus the dollar and uh, worked out perfectly well from a timing perspective. I cannot say that about all of the trades I've implemented <laughs> lately, lately, to be honest, but um, I think that this theme of excess euro optimism is is one that is worth pursuing as well. We discussed, I think, two or three weeks ago, it was when our clients or friends in the industry say stuff like, yeah, but you know, European assets are the new safe haven because the European macro cycle is so much better and there are no risks in Europe. I mean, look mm. at that. When you start hearing that, it's generally a good sign to consider uh, shorting Eurozone and Eurozone, uh, you know, Euro and the Eurozone assets. Yeah. There is nothing special about the Eurozone macro cycle. I'm sorry, guys. There is no new safe haven. There is no, nothing like that. It's just that macro cycles are not perfectly in sync this time. And the US has led anybody else. And now it's leading anybody else on the weakness down. And, you know, Europe and then maybe Japan later on will probably just end up being lagged uh, macro cycles compared to the US. There is nothing yeah. particularly special about the Eurozone macro cycle. Andreas, let's leave add it, something? No, let's leave it at that for this week. Long the US dollar, it seems like at least a consensus trade in this room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, let's see whether it plays out as well as, uh, as we hope for here. Alf, I, I have sympathy for that short um, view on, on the Eurozone as well, as you can hear. Alf, uh, if um, our listeners want to go check out more about uh, your research company, where do you uh, release stuff? If you heard me blubber for 35 minutes and you are still interested in what I have to say, then you go on themacrocompass.com. You'll find plenty of research, portfolio strategies, timely pieces. Go check it out, themacrocompass.com. Andreas, if they're not tired of hearing of your voice, what more? <laughs> 
Well, then, the, then you can uh, read what I've written instead on stenoresearch.com. Uh, we have a very interesting piece out where we've looked at the deposit developments in each and every single European country. Uh, and I can guarantee you that some of the trends that we saw ahead of SVB going down in the US, they are now present in some of the larger economies in, in Europe. So I'll leave that as a cliffhanger. Go check it out here. <laughs> and uh, finally, guys, if you have been listening to us for 36 minutes on the new YouTube channel. I mean, come on, please subscribe. It makes more sense, right? You're going to get a notification when the next 36 minutes long video is going to be out talking about macro markets, the economy and trade ideas. If you're listening on a podcast, you're the best. Thanks for sticking with us. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next Sunday. Ciao.